I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. Today on the show, what happens when you take the principles of finance, concepts like optionality, value creation, leverage, you name it, and use them to answer some big philosophical questions? Leverage parallels, you know, our own lives, which is we actually make big, big commitments to people, and then we get things that we actually wouldn't be able to get otherwise. Matt Klein talks to Mihir Desai, author and Harvard Business and Law professor, about his latest book, The Wisdom of Finance. Here it is. Mihir Desai, thanks for coming. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me, Matt. I want to start by asking you why you decided to write The Wisdom of Finance. I looked at the long list of papers that you've published over the years, and many of them have to do with things like the interaction between taxes and investment decisions of multinationals, which is certainly relevant to today's discussion, but it's not obvious what the connection is uh, to this book. So what was the motivating force for you? There's no connection between my scholarship historically and this book. This is a complete departure for me from anything I've done as a scholar before. Uh, but the reason to do the book, I think, is really twofold. One, I think finance needs to be demystified and it needs to be rehabilitated. And so demystified means finance gets mischaracterized by a lot of people today uh, and they're intimidated by it. And we need to make finance open to people so that they stop demonizing it in the way they do and so that they can be empowered to learn the underlying ideas. And I wanted to do that in a way that was not with equations or graphs. I, I do that in my classrooms. I do that in my online course. I didn't want to do that here. I wanted to make it all about stories. That's, I think, the best way to demystify finance. And then the second um, thing I wanted to do was I think finance needs some rehabilitation. Chunks of finance are broken. You know, by that, I mean there's more value extraction going on than value creation. And I think the answer to that has to come from within the industry. I, I don't terribly much believe in regulation or outrage is solving those problems. They can help. But I think we have to get re-anchored in the underlying ideas of finance and the nobility of those ideas. And the book is meant to try to make people reconnect to those underlying ideas and kind of get their heads out of spreadsheets and, and screens and really start thinking about the underlying ideas and what makes them really great ideas. And, and I guess the final thing to say is just on a personal basis, I was looking for something really different. You know, um, I was looking to do things differently. And in the last several years, I started teaching at the law school. I've started an online course, and now I have this book because I really wanted to do things differently than what I've done historically. So the book is an interesting origin story, which is that you were asked to give a speech that's traditionally given by one of the top professors at the business school every year, the last lecture. And uh, this book ended up growing out of that. But as you described, that your original plan for the last lecture was a bit different, and then you sort of talked around with some people. Can you give us more of a sense of how that that unfolded. Yeah, sure. No, it, you know, it's again very serendipitous. So uh, I was asked to give one of these uh, talks when and students graduate, and uh, I said, "Sure, I'm happy to do that." And I had planned. This was May of 2015. I had planned to give this talk about uh, the slow motion LBO of America. You know, really about the levering up and the the buyback craze and why effectively companies are going private in really slow ways. And I was kind of told that's not exactly what these talks are supposed to be about, you know, which is they're supposed to be about wisdom. And so um, I came up with a title, not knowing exactly what it meant. Um, I had to be talking about wisdom. I happen to know something about finance. You put those two words together, you get the wisdom of finance. <laughs> but the really remarkable part was how quickly that title um, actually became manifest in a whole bunch of ideas, um, a bunch of ideas about how the ways in which we think about finance and financial ideas actually corresponds to life. And that, I think, was kind of amazing and, and in some ways easy. So I gave the talk, and in effect, I took these ideas from finance and mapped them to your life. Optionality, value creation, leverage, how does that make you think about your life differently? But And the, and the student reaction was just spectacular, and it really made me want to write the book. Writing the book is turns out a different thing than giving a talk. <laughs> you know, some people get away with writing down their talk and publishing it, and I, I didn't really want to do that. So you can sustain it for an hour in a talk, but to get a book, 
you, you need a lot of stories. And so then the transition to the book was, how do I enliven all this stuff in a way that is really engaging and fun? Um, and that came out to be the humanities. Uh, so the subtitle of the book is, you know, discovering humanity in the world of risk and return. And the way we discover the humanity of these ideas is through the humanities. Uh, and that helps us hopefully rehumanize finance as well. That's one of the things I really enjoyed about the book is that you make a pretty compelling case that despite all of the, the math and abstract concepts we associate with finance, it's really a humanistic discipline. And it's sort of trying to deal with the same kinds of questions that philosophy and literature have, have asked before. And you know, if I were to sort of oversimplify in a, in a sentence, it would be something along the lines of, you know, how can we mortals thrive in a world that's filled with danger? And all the points you talk about, as you said, optionality and, and uh, corporate governance and, all these, and a lot of these other uh, and, and risk management insurance, it all sort of derives from this sort of basic insight, as, as I understood the book. And I, I thought that was just, uh, you know, a very interesting point to make. It was not something that we, we get a lot of that connection. Yeah. I mean, I, I should have had you, you know, write the jacket copy, <laughs> um, you know, meaning how to, how, I think what you said is how, how to thrive in a world filled with danger. And I think that's exactly right. That is the fundamental problem in life, which is uncertainty everywhere, randomness everywhere. And the insurance chapter really tries to make that case. And then how does one thrive? That's about, you know, risk management, uh, which is a chapter about. And then thrive, you know, what is the definition of thrive? Well, that's got to be about value creation. And that's what, you know, that chapter is about. And then the other pieces are about, you know, how leverage helps you thrive or can stop you from thriving. Um, you know, once I, you know, had committed to that title, The Wisdom of Finance, the reason I think it fell together so easily in a way is that at its core, finance is about value creation and is about doing that in a world of risk. And as you point out, most of us are really care about value creation in our lives. We're asking ourselves if we're making a difference. And we're cognizant of all the chaos around us. And that's fundamentally finance. I mean, there always has been some connection between people with the humanities background and people with finance background. I mean, you look at people such as you know, Lloyd Blankfein has a and, and Hank Paulson both studied humanities, for example. But you, you actually highlight one that I found very interesting and I didn't know about, I confess, which is Wallace Stevens. Um, so tell us more about him and how he really kind of blended those worlds. Yeah, so Wallace Stevens is, uh, is just a, it's a great story. And in fact, the epigram to the book comes from him, which is money is a kind of poetry. And the reason I like that quote is it puts together these two ideas that people never put together. You know, the high-minded world of poetry in the humanities and the somewhat crass world in many people's minds of money. So the reason he's really interesting is, A, he's one of the best poets, I think, if not the greatest American poet of the 20th century. But the really fun part for our purposes is he spent his whole life in the insurance industry and he worked at the Hartford. And, you know, it's, it's spectacular in a way because other poets made fun of him. You know, he's kind of bourgeois. He was, he was in fact, uh, I think John Ashbery, you know, called him a money man um, because he wouldn't live the poet life. <laughs> um, and in fact, uh, Harvard offered him the Charles Eliot Norton professorship of poetry. And he said no, because he wanted to stay at the Hartford, you know, which is not something that we run into that often. So, but the thing is, why did he stay in insurance? Not just that he came out of it, why did he stay? And, you know, it's interesting because in his prose, which not many people read, he really does make the case that poetry and insurance are not that different. And, you know, for him, what is art and what is poetry? If you, you know, you think about um, some of his famous poetry, the idea of order at Key West, it's all about the world of chaos and it's about how ideas and poetry and art helps you understand a world of chaos. In that case, it's like nature. There's chaos everywhere. And then art helps you think it through. And imagination helps you think it through. And for him, that's what insurance was. You know, what do insurance companies do? They like live in a world of chaos and they have to make sense of it. And they look for the patterns and then they're able to navigate all that chaos. For Stevens, navigating that chaos was art and his imagination. He literally talks about imagination as navigating the chaos. How do you organize all this stuff? And that's exactly what we do, and that's exactly what insurers do. So he's a really great example of what used to be more common, you know, which is uh, people in the humanities who were involved in finance and people in finance involved in the humanities. One of the funnest things I did is came up with a little quiz of all the different people who have been involved in finance who you wouldn't think of. So there's Stevens, but there's also, of course, T.S. Eliot, who really enjoyed working at Lloyd's Bank. And despite efforts to kind of pull him out by uh, Ezra Pound and others, Charles Ives, 
one of the greatest composers of the last century, was in fact, I think, the largest insurance broker in the country 100 years ago, in addition to like his compositional efforts. <laughs> um, obviously, Franz Kafka spent time in, in insurance. And there's really a lot of people who grew up in the world of finance and yet were obviously capable of being great humanists. And the last 50 years has seen those worlds separate. And I think that's, that's really unfortunate. Do you have a sense of why that happened? Well, I think, uh, you know, two things happened. Um, one is I think both worlds became much more specialized in unfortunate ways, right? So we've seen um, novelists and artists migrate into the academy. And as a consequence, and many people think, you know, that's why the novel was struggling as a form, which is people are more and more isolated in the academy. And as a consequence, they may have less and less of a connection to the world. And so the humanities writ large has become, I think, more isolated from the real world. Um, there's a great essay by Dana Joya, who is a poet as well. He spent 20 years at General Mills. And he kind of makes the point, which is poets don't write about work and business in the way that it actually occupies people's lives. <laughs> you know, so very, very few people actually do that. So I think the first piece is humanities have become more cloistered uh, and a little bit more insular and inward looking. They're talking to themselves more and more as opposed to talking to the world. And then, of course, the exact same thing applies to finance. You know, the the fantastic part of finance in the last 60 years has been the quantitative rigor and the abstraction and the theorizing that has allowed us to make what I think are really important gains. But it means we talk to ourselves, you know, more often than not. And um, we're hyper-specialized. And so there isn't that much room for people who span those worlds, which I think is really unfortunate. In one of the motivating essays, you know, for the book is, is this Two Cultures essays by C.P. Snow, who articulated how there were these two worlds of science and humanities and they'd grown apart. Exact same thing applies to finance. And his point, and the point I'm trying to make is it's a loss to both sides. You know, humanities are, are losing their ability to speak to people who have real world concerns. Um, and they have this kind of caricature of finance as being evil, while in fact, there are chunks of it that are, but there's a huge amount of good that's there. And similarly, people in finance caricaturize, you know, people in the humanities as having nothing to say. And that obviously is wrong as well. I confess part of what I'm just amazed by is that they had the time to do both of these things. At the, I mean, the way you described it is, is that essentially, the, you know, these great compositions and poems were essentially, you know, hobbies done for it. I mean, maybe that's not, that's quite fair, but I mean, it's remarkable. I also wonder if the, the time commitment of a job in finance is so much more intense now than it may have been in the past. Yeah, I don't know if that's something as I well. I think that's possible. I think, um, I mean, these are obviously extraordinary people. <laughs> you know, just to be clear, these are way out on sure. the tail um, of people in terms of their capabilities. And, and maybe it was less consuming. But these people, you know, Kafka was a clerk, effectively. But Eliot ran a pretty important part of Lloyd's on the intelligence side. And Stevens was one of the leading uh, counsels at the Hartford. So these were not trivial jobs. Maybe it's just, you know, they weren't spending a lot of time on Netflix. I don't know. <laughs> they, were, they, were having, uh, they were applying all their energy. And in fact, it's, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about this, which is um, Stevens used to have a drawer in his desk filled with paper and he would just write things down in the middle of the day as they occurred to him like phrases and then he would put it back in the drawer so he was always working you know what i mean like he, it wasn't like he only worked at night on poetry his mind was always kind of going in that direction maybe that's a maybe that's a good model uh getting to some of the specific concepts you're talking about I mean, we established that insurance is is sort of creating order out of chaos and and that analogy uh one of the other ideas that that you mentioned that i think is quite interesting and applies to regular lives is the idea of optionality. You wrote uh, actually an op-ed column in the Harvard Crimson recently about this as a sort of advice for students. And you also talk about how on different side of things that Thales of Miletus in, in Greece took advantage. So give us a sense of what optionality is and how you can make it work for you and how it can also be lead people astray. Yeah. So in that chapter on risk management, I try to make the case that you know options are not some modern creation coming out of Black Scholes Merton, <laughs> uh, but instead, in fact, a manifestation of a deep you know, human impulse has been two millennia long, not just, you know, uh, Thales writing one of the first option contracts so that he could prove that philosophers can make money, but even just the way people think through ideas. So the example I give is Pride and Prejudice and, and Phineas Finn by Anthony Trollope, where you have these uh, young women who are faced with a risk management problem. And that risk management problem, you know, to hear Jane Austen say it is young women can't make mistakes and young men can. And so they have these suitors who come along, you know, and some of them are 
rich but drunks and some of them are poor but nice and some of them are ugly but you know <laughs> you know basically everyone's got a problem and what the fantastic part is um these characters basically intuit the idea of options you know without calling it that you know so um i think most pointedly violet effingham in in phineas finn you know basically articulates an option portfolio strategy to this problem she's going to assemble a bunch of options and then when she's ready she's going to kind of hit the one she really wants to do and she also articulates the logic of diversification. So the first part of the chapter is just like, look, options are everywhere, and they're not something abstract that only people in finance do. We all think like this, basically. And in fact, you know, the second part is this idea of optionality actually can be taken to excess. So I'm sure you've heard people in finance talk about optionality. You know, do they love optionality? It's it's you know being able to do things without ever being on the hook for having to do them. <laughs> and so you know what I hear my students say all the time is more optionality more optionality, the better. Um, and they even talk about, you know, they talk about marriage, you know, as the death of optionality. It's every piece of their life is in this term. But the, I think the thing that happens that's a problem is they get a little obsessed with it. And so what ends up happening to these people, at least the students I've observed, is um, they just get addicted to optionality. Um, and so what does that mean? You undertake a higher education degree to create more choices in the future, more optionality. You join a prestigious firm to get more optionality in the future, so on and so forth. You create these networks to create optionality in the future. And that all sounds great, but for the fact that optionality, buying optionality becomes addictive. And I see these people and I observe these people just spending the rest of their lives buying optionality. And so you just keep getting good at buying safety nets. And that's, of course, a puzzle because, in fact, what options are meant to allow you to do is to take big idiosyncratic risks. And the you know, in a way, the, the, the thing that I ex try to explain in that editorial and in the book is you should really be careful about being getting addicted to optionality because it can actually become self-defeating. And the lesson of finance for your life gets overlearned, you know, which is you just spend all your time buying options. And that's really, I think, really, really unfortunate. Right. I mean, there's a perversity involved if you value optionality because it gives you choices, but then there's only one optimal path for maximizing your options and you actually have zero choice. Yeah. That's a and that's and you and I think it's also people don't realize that um, they think that um, these decisions about what they do with their lives don't change who they are. And I think what I observe is you start buying options, you become more risk averse. Why? Because you're spending a lot of your time in risk averse atmospheres <laughs> and you're just kind of getting used to not taking risks. And so then if you think you're going to wake up in 10 years having acquired all this optionality and be the same person, you're wrong because you've just gotten more and more uh, used to these worlds where risks are not there. So how do we know when to actually exercise the option and take the risk? That's a great question. And in part, that's about the value creation chapter. I think, um, you know, in the last, actually the last chapter of the book, I try to identify somebody in literature who's really a finance hero. And it turns out to be a heroine who's Alexandra Bergson. And she really articulates the process of search, right? And experience. So, it's like the insurance example, which is how do you um, figure out the chaos? And how do you know when to pull the trigger? And the answer is uh, experience. You, know, you go out there and you experience as much as you can and you develop intuitions. That, um, you know, unfortunately is not done by buying options. That's done by taking incremental risks, you know, and to taking small steps in certain directions. And then you can learn how to take steps. And then you develop the intuition to take steps. And that's how you take the steps, as opposed to buying options and waiting for the right thing to arrive. That's the mistake people make, right? I'm just, I'm just waiting because the right thing is going to come. And that's true in the marriage market. That's true in the labor market. That's true in the entrepreneurial market. And the reality is that's not the way the world works. You, you expose yourself. You go out into the world. Things then maybe show up. I guess in the case of the Phineas Finn example you were talking about, the option had an expiry date, and so she had exercise. Is that the it, way it, of framing it? Or? Indeed, yeah, yeah, and indeed she did, yeah. And it's really, you know, in a way, those, those, that chapter and those parallels, I think it's really important that we take finance out of the lingo that we take it as. You know, usually, like, so optionality, you know, people will talk about it, but they'll talk about it in a way that's quite uh, alienating to people outside of finance. And I think one of the goals in the book is to say, you know, it's not that different than Jane Austen, you know, and then somebody who's outside finance can say, yeah, I remember that. I, I read Pride and Prejudice. And, and in fact, I think about my life a little bit like that. So th that's part of the power of those examples. So moving on to the question of creating value. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, what is that? I mean, 
it's, it sounds like creating value, but I mean, what, how is that something that actually people in sort of finance academia think about that? And how does that relate to how normal people might think of this concept? Yeah. So, you know, in a way, one of the great things about writing this book is you have to return to core ideas. You know, even myself and my scholarship or even sometimes in teaching, you forget the core ideas. And insurance is one example of that, which is insurance is everything in finance. When you, when you come back to think about it, it's everything. Value creation, you know, what is it at its core? Um, you know, value creation at its core is uh, you're the steward of other people's capital whether you are a uh, hedge fund manager or you are a CEO or an entrepreneur, and uh, you have to beat their cost of capital. And their cost, your cost of capital is their expected return, and their expected return is a function of the risk you expose them to. And so the sine qua non of value creation is you got to beat your cost of capital. And that's true if you're a hedge fund manager where you have uh, liabilities that have their expected returns, or if you're uh, a CEO who's trying to figure out how to manage capital allocation. That's the sine qua non, but it's not the only thing, right? How else do you maximize or create value? You can't just do it for one year. You got to do it in a sustainable way. And if you do it in a sustainable way over time, that's where real value accretes. For many people, that's about um, return on invested capital over weighted average cost of capital, right? It's just got to be sustainable and sustainable over time to create value. So you have to have the gap between your returns and cost of capital, and you've got to keep it open for a long time. And then finally, the final part in finance for value creation is you got to grow, meaning you got to take those returns, those excess returns, that alpha, and you've got to put it back in the business and you got to compound those returns. That's like massive value creation. So in a way, finance is really simple. You know, beat your cost of capital, do it for as long as possible and grow. If you're doing those three things, value creation is going to be several multiples. Uh, it's not going to be 10%. It's going to be five times, 10 times. Well, what does that have to do kind of, you know, with life? Um, and, you know, one of the ways I try to talk about this is the parable of the talents, which is this crazy parable in the Bible. And, you know, just very briefly, there's in this parable, there's a master who has these three servants. And these three servants are kind of with the master when he decides to go away. And talents, we think of as what makes us special, but in fact, talents was money. And so the master kind of gives the first servant five talents, the second servant, three talents, and the last servant, one talent, and says, I'm going away, you take care of this, and I'll be back. And when he comes back, the servants come up to him. The first servant says, I took your five talents, and I lent them out, and I made them into 10. And the master, who's obviously the Lord, basically says, welcome to the kingdom of God. I'm very pleased. The second one has done the same, turned three into six. And the last one says, you know, I was very nervous. I only had one talent, so I buried it but it's safe and here it is. And he's banished from the kingdom of God and he's damned. Um, it's a really painful parable, <laughs> but the lesson is the same. You are the steward of other people's capital. Um, people have given you opportunities. People have given you resources. And if you don't employ them in a way that maximizes their value, you're destroying value. And in fact, they have expectations. They have high expectations of what they've endowed you with. And you should exceed those expectations. And only when you exceed those expectations, exceed the kind of things you've been given in life until you contribute as much more than you've been given, that is value creation. That's living a meaningful life. And that is what finance says about beating your cost of capital. In fact, that parable is used by John Wesley, who's the founder of Methodism, to kind of basically say the same thing, which is his famous quote, which I think actually Hillary Clinton used in her acceptance speech, is you know, give as much as you can for as long as you can to as many as you can in as many ways as you can, that whole thing. Eh, that sounds like value creation, you know? That, that's exactly the recipe for value creation coming out of finance. And very much interacting with this as a way that people can either accelerate value creation or potentially value destruction is the idea of leverage. Yeah. Something you spend a lot of time talking about and the ways it can be used. And in fact, you, you, the cover of the book actually is a representation of this, uh, the idea of Archimedes' lever. He says, give me a lever long enough and I can move the world. Essentially, it will you know, increase or magnify the amount of force you can apply. So how does that relate? How does the finance concept of leverage relate to the sort of physics concept of leverage? Yeah. So I think they're you know, very closely related. And um, you know, in a way, one of the things I try to do in class and in the book is you don't want to know an idea as leverage just by talking about finance. If you think about a lever... That'll help you understand what leverage is. So for the rest of your life, you'll understand why it's so amazing in finance and also so problematic. Um, you know, so a lever fundamentally amplifies force, right? What do you get through a lever? It's this magical thing in engineering, which is you can't move a rock and then you can move a rock because you got a lever. And of course, that's exactly what it is in finance. 
um, which is you want to control assets. You want to buy a home you have no right to buy. How do you get to buy a home you have no right to buy? It's the magic of a lever, leverage. Um, how do you buy an education you can't afford? It's the magic of leverage. How do you control more assets than you have any right to control? It's called leverage. And so that's always what this is about. And it, it maps to a deeper idea, you know, which, about I think what leverage is in our lives, which is, you know, fundamentally the way you get to have that magnification of force is you commit yourself. And it's a very, very serious commitment. Like that's what debt is, a very, very serious commitment. And of course, that's why it's not a free lunch. Right? You're, you're magnifying your returns, you're magnifying your buying power, but it comes with a lot of risk. Why? Because you've made really substantial commitments. Right? If you think about a levered firm, you've made large substantial commitments to lenders, and that allows you to control more assets than you have any right to control. I think what I tried to talk about in the book is, and, and this goes back to um, you know, the Merchant of Venice or a lot of other examples, which is that play is nominally about debt. You know. In that play, Shylock is the lender and there's the whole pound of flesh thing. But of course, the real, that play is really about the bond of between people. So in fact, it's the Shakespearean play with the word love more than any other Shakespearean play. You know, in, in, the, in the literary criticism of that play, people point out this is not really about debt. It's about the bond between people and about obligations between people and how that creates love. So, you know, what does that have to do with finance? And the answer is, um, what does that have to do with your life? Which is, well, when we enter into serious commitments with other people, that allows us to do things we have no other way of doing. Um, and of course, that is true when you're in a large organization. There are a lot of trade-offs in being in a large organization versus being on your own. You're basically committing to a set of people around you, a, a network of people to behave in a certain way and according to certain norms. And that gives you access to certain things that you wouldn't have as a freelancer. It's true in family life. You commit to a, to a spouse or certainly if you commit to the you know, greatest obligation of all, which is, I think, children, you end up getting access to an experience there's no other way to have access to. And I think that's the sense in which leverage parallels, you know, our own lives, which is we actually make big, big commitments to people, and then we get things that we actually wouldn't be able to get otherwise. In that chapter, I end with Jefferson, who, in his in one of his letters, he basically says, I've always, you know, thought it best to do the right thing. Because the greatest lever, and he's referencing Archimedes, you know, if you want to move the world, the greatest lever is your reputation. And so how is reputation a lever? Well, you commit yourself to good behavior and you get a good reputation and the world allows you to do things you have no right to do, <laughs> right? I mean, that is, that, that's what leverage is and that's what reputation is. And that's why it's so valuable. So I think, you know, in that chapter, what I just try to do is, is lay out a couple of basic ideas about leverage. One is it's an idea about commitments that magnifies your ability to do things. That's true in life. That's true in finance. They're really serious commitments. And it's not as if it's a free lunch. And the last thing is the same strategy doesn't work for everybody. You know, just like there are low leverage firms and there are high leverage firms. You know, in finance, we think of utilities or, you know, tobacco companies as being high leverage firms because stable cash flows just lever that thing up as opposed to, you know, the company that's going to develop CRISPR, you don't put a lot of debt on that company. Um, just like that, for human beings, there are people who are really good low-leverage firms. They should be low-leverage in life. And then there are people who couldn't try to be high-leverage. And so the example I try to work through is uh, these two artists. You know, One is uh, George Orwell and one is Jeff Koons. George Orwell is like the low-leverage guy. Um, he, in the aftermath of World War II, is getting sucked to dry. He's a journalist in London, and he can't think over the long term or creatively because everyone wants 800 words out of him every day. So he just escapes to the Scottish Hebrides for three years, and he writes 1984. And he just, you know, basically gets no commitments, and he just does it. The high leverage guy is, you know, Jeff Koons, who is, I think, a great artist, but tastes differ. I happen to like him. But he creates these massive sculptures that are, you know, greater than the size of this room. And he does it by employing 150 people. He doesn't really know how to use the material that he actually works with. He, contra he has experts to do that. He's gone bankrupt like three times. And by the way, he started as a cotton futures trader. Um, so he's like living a high leverage life. And, you know, the good news is he can create things he would never be able to create by himself. And, you know, the Whitney gave him a solo show when they moved. So, yeah, it's a hugely risky thing, but it has these big payoffs. I mean, in my life, I feel like we're, we're trying to live a highly levered life. 
if you have obligations, if you have kids and you have careers, you know, it can work out or it cannot work out. It's a high leverage life. And if it works, it's great, but it's certainly not for everyone. And it's pretty risky, I think. Seems like a perfect way to segue into the section on, on bankruptcy, which is all about what happens when it doesn't work. And uh, you have some very interesting history in there, which I confess I didn't know before, which is that the reason that America has a relatively accommodating bankruptcy regime and culture around failure uh, has to do with something very specific in the history of this country. Why don't you tell us that story about Robert Morris? Yeah. So this was, I, it's, you know, this is one of the fantastic things about writing a book is you find these things that I had no idea of, about before. Um, so, you know, Robert Morris is somebody who, you know, 99.9% of Americans have no idea who this person is, um, other than maybe they know they've heard of Robert Morris University. Um, and so he, this guy turns out to be the richest man of the colonies, pre-independence. He is the financier of the revolution, so-called. He actually, his personal script financed the Battle of Yorktown, which of course was a turning point in the war. Um, he actually, uh, under the Articles of Confederation, is the Treasury Secretary equivalent. And in fact, Washington asks him to be the first Secretary of the Treasury. And of course, you know, nobody knows who Robert Morris is. And, you know, you can't get a ticket to the Richard Rogers Theater <laughs> to kind of go see Hamilton. And and what, what happened? And the answer is, when Washington asked him, he had, he had depleted his wealth so much during the war, he wanted to recoup it. So he goes and he recoups it, and he does fantastically well post-1789. Um, and he owns like a third of the District of Columbia and massive parts of New York State. And then he goes bankrupt. And what happens is, you know, what did we do to people who went bankrupt? You know, we put them in jail. And he ends up in the 30th Street Jail in Philadelphia. And he's now lost to history as a consequence. <laughs> the neat part of that story is, you know, not that he ends up in the 30th Street Jail, but one, to realize we used to punish people who failed. And we thought they were morally kind of bankrupt because they didn't live up to their obligations. And so we put them in jail. What ends up happening in that case is um, George Washington, you know, at his own risk of getting yellow fever, visits him in jail and realizes that the guy who helped finance the revolution is now sitting in a jail. And how can this be right? And so that ends up resulting in the 1800 uh, Bankruptcy Act, which is the singular change in the way we think about failure. And we go from saying, you know, you failed, you're bad, you go to jail, to the much more modern notion, which is you failed, we're going to get you a clean slate. We're going to get you protection because actually you're not the one who's evil, but you actually need protection from the people who are chasing after you. And you get a clean slate and actually the, we're going to get you a lot of help. And those people who give you help are going to have priority over all the other people. So in that sense, it's all about changing our idea of failure from, and in fact, this is the language used at the time, um, uh, changing the language of failure from death to rebirth. So the legal scholars who have looked at this act kind of say it all was always about death. Bankruptcy is the end. And now it's about the new beginning. Um, you know, so the neat thing about that is I think that's a good guide to thinking about failure in your own life, you know, which is if you punish yourself or you punish others when they fail, it's kind of a tough way to live. If instead you understand failure as a consequence of chance, then you don't punish people for it. You kind of prioritize giving them a clean start. Um, so that's a kind of a neat way to think about failure in, in finance, but also, you know, in life. The, the really fun thing about bankruptcy, though, of course, is it isn't always that simple because some people fail because they strategically want to fail. And then that makes it even more morally complicated. You know, you just the reason why we get queasy about bankruptcies and we just don't feel great about everybody getting a fresh start is, you know, some people are going to misbehave and they're going to be strategic. And of course, we see that in finance all the time. Right. I mean, you have a great example about American Airlines and, and the way they ended up proceeding into bankruptcy, where one CEO had strongly resisted, and then eventually the company was forced to go into bankruptcy. And the argument for doing it wasn't so much that the debts to sort of traditional financial creditors were the problem, but more that the obligations they had to retire their retired employees, their pension obligation was an issue, and they wanted to have an excuse to essentially renegotiate those contracts. Yeah. So the, the great thing about that story is um, – Again, I actually hadn't followed it very carefully, but the American Airlines bankruptcy is spectacular, right? The neat thing about it is I tell the story twice, um, just to underscore the moral ambiguity of these situations. And that first CEO, Jared Arpe, um, is like, you know, a guy who just basically won't declare bankruptcy. And he's the last airline, to, American is the last airline to go bankruptcy. And he says, I will not renege on my commitments. And that sounds great. And the New York Times hails him as like a paragon of the moral CEO. 
um, he uh, appoints this guy, uh, Tom Horton, who ends up undercutting him and declares bankruptcy behind his back. And Arpe is disgusted and leaves the next day. Um, and then Horton does, you know, even if he's got $5 billion in the bank, he declares bankruptcy, he restructures, he guts the pensions, he does a bunch of things, and American Airlines ends up merging. The first time I tell the story, you know, you're thinking Arpe is the hero and Horton's this evil guy. And the answer is not so clear. <laughs> you know, the other version of that story is by the time Horton did it, um, Air, American Airlines stock was already below a dollar. And he was effectively destroying the airline by not declaring bankruptcy. There was concerns that the pilots were all going to mass retire just so they could be at the front of the line. And so American Airlines was literally going to end because uh, of Arpe's pride. And so the second version of the story is Horton is kind of the hero. He does all the messy stuff. He restructures it. He changes the obligations. He uh, guts the pensions. And what happens? Well, American Airlines ends up merging with U.S. Airways and is now one of the largest, if not the largest airline in the world. That's not meant to say that Horton is a good guy or RP is a bad guy, but it just, I think, helps underscore, A, why bankruptcy is so fascinating, because it's morally ambiguous. And then second, it's just meant to, you know, articulate this idea that, you know, that's a lot of what life is like. You know, you got to navigate these commitments, and it's really, really hard. And RP is you know, in philosophical terms, he's kind of like categorical about his duties. It's like, I'm just, I'm going to live by my duties. That's, life is simple. You just live by your duties. And Horton is this very kind of different guy. He's like, look, life is just filled with conflicts and you just have to live with the world of conflicts. And I think that's a little bit more of a close rock approximation to what life is, you know, which is just filled with conflicts and you got to navigate it and it's messy as hell. And that's just what it is, as opposed to the Arpe view of the world, which is just do the right thing. And that's all there is. It's obvious. And turns out, I think most of life is you know, much messier than that. Of course, this creates a very interesting tension between the idea of leverage as some, maximize your commitments and creating value that way and bankruptcy as, well, if you have too many commitments, you need to get out of some of them. Yeah. There's a, that's, what, that's what this ambiguity really is all about, I guess. Yeah. And that's what a lot of finance is about, right? Which is, you know, the right amount of leverage is about balancing those trade-offs, right? Which is the ability to kind of, and that's what everybody in finance does. If you're a trader, or if you're a hedge fund manager, or you're a CFO, you're you're trying to trying to get that trade-off right. And it's also what we do in life, right? Like, so if you make too many commitments, you know, people sometimes have to restructure all their commitments, you know? Sometimes people call that a midlife crisis. Sometimes people call it a lot of other things. But you basically come to a point where you're like, geez, I can't, I can't, I can't handle the commitments I've made. You can call that a nervous breakdown. You can call that a midlife crisis. You can call it whatever you want. And then the answer is, you know, more morally problematic, right? Which is, well, wait a second. You have obligations to people and uh, you're reneging on them. Um, and it's not clear that you're the one who deserves the pity in those situations. At the same time, there are people who genuinely get overcommitted in their life and they find themselves under a weight that they can't bear. Um, and of course, that's true with student debt, and that's true with debt, but it's also true with, you know, the commitments we make to people. You know, it's, it's funny you mention that because it reminds me very much of a story you mentioned at the very beginning of the book uh, from uh, interlude in, in Dashiell Hammett's novel version of the Maltese Falcon. It's not in the movie, but that very much relates to this. So can I give a sense of how that fits yeah. in here? So, the, I, you know, it's funny because that is the first um, story I tell. And, you know, I was really worried about starting the book with insurance because most people think it's so boring. <laughs> um but when you think about finance, it's so core. And so I try to use it with a story um, from, from the Maltese Falcon, and the story is called The Flitcraft Parable. And for whatever reason, it's really unfortunate. John Huston left it out of the movie, but it's in the book. And most people who study Hammett think it's the most important story he's, that's embedded in any book. So Sam Spade, who's, of course, this like you know detective, hardscrabble detective who doesn't talk much, um, tells this story to this woman who is his love interest and his prime suspect. And he says, I want to tell you the story of Flitcraft. And here's the story, which is this woman calls him up and says, my husband disappeared five years ago. And he just disappeared. He went out in the morning and he never came back. Life was good. No financial problems, nothing. And I just got a phone call from somebody in Spokane, Washington, who says they just saw him. I want you to go to Spokane and find out if that's my husband. Sam Spade takes the case. He goes to Spokane and pretty quickly he finds the guy. And he's like, are you Flitcraft? And the guy has changed his name to 
Pierce, you know, Spade says, what happened? And he's perfectly happy to tell the story. He says, well, I, I left that morning and I was on my way to lunch. And as I was walking by, this giant beam near a construction site fell right next to me. I almost died. And a piece of the sidewalk flew up into my face and I still have a scar from it. And he said, at that moment, I realized that I've been living a well-ordered life because I thought the universe was well-ordered. And in fact, the universe is completely random. And I just saw how random it is. And I am going to be in sync with the world and I'm going to change my life at random. And he just leaves. <laughs> um, and he wanders around for a little while and then he ends up in Spokane. By the way, when I, you know, when I was writing this book and I told my wife that story, she was not impressed. She was like, why would you want to start the book with that story? Um, but Sam Spade gets to the punchline. He says, um, you know, the greatest part of the story is he ends up in Spokane and he's basically recreated the same life he had before. And he's kind of got the same wife. He's got the same job. He's kind of got the same family arrangement. And so that's the Flitcraft parable. And, and, and what's the lesson of that? And it's obviously open to interpretation, but Hammett buries the clues in those names. So Flitcraft was the most important actuary at the turn of the last century. And Hammett was, in fact, a private investigator who worked with insurance companies. And it's all about insurance. And it's all about risk, right? So um, what's the lesson of that story? Chaos everywhere. How do you navigate it? You look for the patterns, right? And so, in fact, what looks like chaos actually adheres to patterns, regularities, he ends up back in Spokane doing the same thing he was doing before. Even though he's trying to change his life at random, he can't because the regularities are so dominant. Well, of course, that's like most of finance. You know, there's a ton of randomness and you have to make sense of it and you have to look for the patterns. It's, of course, exactly what insurance companies do. There's like a thousand people, you know, with my actuarial characteristics. Um, when are we all going to die? It's completely looks haphazard. Some of us are going to die now. Some of us are going to die later. Unclear how you manage that risk. And the answer, of course, is you look for the patterns. And, you know, my actuarially appointed time of death is in 38 years. And everyone like me is the similar thing. And we can now manage the risk because the insurance company is going to write the policies on me. So that's the sense in which kind of, you know, go back to where you began a little bit, which is, you know, thriving in a world of danger. And the answer is you have to look like what insurance companies do, which is they have to get experience. You got to go out and you got to figure out what the underlying patterns are. Um, in fact, that story about the reason he chose the name Pierce is because there's this remarkable American uh, philosopher named Peirce, actually spells his name slightly different. He's the inventor of the randomized controlled trial. He's just this incredible guy. And he had this maxim, which is we are all insurance companies. And every time he said it, everyone was like, this is ridiculous because insurance companies are the most boring things in the world. And of course, what he meant was, we're all faced with chaos. We have to figure out patterns. We have to get experience to figure it out, which, if, which is his school of philosophy, which is pragmatism. You figure it out by getting experience. And that's the sense in which we're all insurance companies. So changing gears a bit, one of the other sections of the book that, that touches on a lot of these core uh, corporate finance concepts is the idea of governance and principal agent problems. Yeah. Which it's very easy when you say the words principal agent. People think, well, I don't know necessarily what that means. But I mean, the way I understood your, your discussion of it is, is how do you create systems and institutions that actually work for people and don't allow people to rip you off? Yeah. And, you know, what, what are some of the lessons that, we, that we've learned in corporate finance and how those apply to the, the rest of the world? Well, yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is um, from a finance perspective, it is the most important problem there is. Right, so I think if you at very very high level, there's uh, risk in intertemporal settings, and then there's information problems, <laughs> and a lot of life is just about those information problems. And so, in the principal agent case, once you start thinking about the world that way, you can't stop thinking about the world that way. What does that mean? Well, you know, uh, think about what we observe in the capital markets. You know, what is modern capitalism? It's a big principal agent problem. So you have shareholders who are giving money to managers. Um, shareholders are the principals managers or the agents, and yet we can't monitor them perfectly. I can't observe what they're doing. I can't actually even judge what they're doing. Um, and so what do I have to do? I got to set up contracts to help us navigate that problem. That can be an incentive contract. That can be disclosure regimes. That can be all kinds of things. That's called corporate governance. The really powerful thing is, you know, that problem, which is now the most important part, problem in capitalism, 
was more or less non-existent 200 years ago, right? So 200 years ago, most of us, you know, had the privilege of working for ourselves. And in that case, you were both the owner and manager. So now I own a share of Apple, but Tim Cook runs it and he doesn't really listen to me or, you know, he, he has a lot of people to listen to. And so I use the Apple case to make the argument that all of capital markets are basically one big principal agent problem. So in that case, the Apple shareholder revolt from 2013, um, you know, Joe Hedge Fund guy, David Einhorn is like, he's the principal and he's telling Tim Cook, his agent, give me the cash. And I'm going to, you know, otherwise I'm going to wage a proxy fight to issue an IPREF because anything with an I in front is going to solve everything. And that's a principal agent problem, but it gets deeper, which is David Einhorn, Joe Hedge Fund guy, is in fact the agent of some Canadian pension plan manager. And so Einhorn is the principal of Cook, but the agent of the Canadian pension plan manager. And it gets more complicated because the Canadian pension plan manager is the principal of Einhorn, but also the agent of some Canadian pensioner. I mean, it is just layers and layers upon of principal agent problems. What does finance recommend about that? Well, in a way, first, it's just a way to understand why modern capitalism is so hard. Why have we struggled with corporate governance crises? One answer is people have lost their morality. The other answer is it's like an incredibly complex incentive problem, uh, an information problem. And then the second thing is to kind of create these mechanisms which allow us to create contracts. And of course, this was you know the Nobel Prize last year, Oliver Hart and Bengt Hellstrom talking about how you make contracts to get people to do the right thing in their own interest, despite this informational problem. What I try to do in that chapter is to kind of take it out of the world of high finance and put it in the world of your own life. And so, you know, the first way to do that is to talk about the producers because it's this great, you know, musical that's basically about a principal agent problem. You know, Bialystok and Bloom are these two guys. They're ripping off a bunch of investors. How are they doing it? They're creating this crazy show that'll fail and then stealing money. That's like the problem in capitalism. You know, there's, there's a quote from a really, I think, an important, two important finance scholars who says, you know, the the kind of crazy part about capitalism is that any investors get their money back. Like, why? Like, you know, why do any investors ever get their money back? Not like, why do managers misbehave? But how does it ever happen that investors get their money back? But that principal agent frame is like, I think, everywhere in life, right? So I think we often find ourselves in settings which is where either principals or agents. And, you know, principal means... I'm dictating the terms of what's happening. An agent means I'm serving somebody else. And once you see that, you can see that in the work setting. You can see that in the family setting. I have a story in the book about my mom. You can see that in your own sense of self. You know, are you like serving as an agent for somebody else's expectations? Or are you in fact a principal who's trying to figure out what you want to do? Like that's most of what young adulthood is about. It's like, you know, trying to figure out that problem. Um, You know, and in fact, the last the story in that chapter is another Mel Brooks story because I love Mel Brooks. It's, I think it's, it's a really, it's a, it's a kind of a culmination of this principal agent framework, which is he's married to this actress, Anne Bancroft, who's, you know, spectacular and great actress for like 30 years. And Brooks is a director and a producer. And so she comes home one day and she's, and Brooks has been writing all day. She comes home one day and she's complaining about you know, script was terrible. I don't like the director, blah, blah, blah. Life is hard. I don't like any of this stuff. You know, normal things we would complain about when we come home. And Brooks is like finally had enough and he just holds up a blank piece of paper and he says, if you think that's hard, you have no idea this is hard. You know, meaning a blank piece of paper is hard. I think that's like the principal agent problem, <laughs> you know, or in life, that's, that's for all, a lot of us what the problem is, which is, yeah, it's hard to be an actor, but the really hard part is being a principal. You know, and that's like creating creating the dialogue and creating the lines as opposed to reading other people's lines. Yeah, so I think that's a that is the weirdest chapter I think in the book because it tries to take like it goes from you know Brooks to Freud to Tim Cook, but I in a way that's my favorite chapter because it's if you can if you get the thread all the way through and in a way writing the book you're really trying to thread I, I was trying to thread really different things. And when it works, it's like really fantastic. But sometimes it's more tenuous. I think that one is tenuous, but it works. And that is why it's, I think, my most favorite chapter of all, actually. So we touched on this a little bit earlier, but uh, towards the end of the book, you have a couple of different stories that provide contrasts of how financiers live in the world. And you actually create what you, or you, you describe what you call the asshole theory of finance, how actually the practice of doing certain things can sort of change your personality. You talk about a, a Theodore Dreiser story and a, and a Tolstoy story. 
Uh, one is the financier. The other one is how much land does a man need? Can you give us a sense of sort of how those illustrate this asshole theory of finance? Sure. How they are in contrast to the uh, the Alexander Bergson story of the yeah. pioneer. There were some decisions that I like, you know, thought about way too much, including whether or not to use the word asshole in the <laughs> asshole theory of finance. Um, I'm still not sure it was the right thing to do. But I did want to kind of in that chapter try to reconcile two things, which is I just spent the majority of the book telling you how wonderful the ideas of finance are. And yet people really are angry about finance. Why is that? So the first part is just to show that almost all the depictions of finance in culture are horrible. It's like they're just massively greedy people who are insatiable. So the how much land does a man need is actually a good example. Um, You know, short version is this guy in part fueled by leverage um, becomes just incredibly acquisitive and cannot satisfy himself and then dies because he just can't satisfy himself. And the similar thing is true in the financier. And of course, that goes all the way up to, you know, more recent, um, you know, American Psycho or whatever the most latest finance book you want to think about is. And so why is that? Like, why is it that people in finance are depicted that way? And I, and I, what I try to argue is I think finance has they're more than fair share of jerks. And I think that's part of the problem. And we have to just understand why that is. And so the question is, why is that? Um, what I try to suggest is finance is unique. And in a way, only surgery is like this, which is what, do you, what is really unique about finance? So first, you're getting feedback all the time. So if you're living in markets, you're constantly getting feedback and very precise feedback. You're up a point today, you're down a point, whatever it is. Second, those loops of feedback are inflated by leverage. So it's not just your actions, you're actually getting 10x the effect. And so you have these massive feedback loops, they're inflated by leverage, they're constant. And in that setting, you know, what do you do? And the answer is you do what all human beings do, which is you make attribution errors. So what do we know about human beings? Everything good that happens to them is their own responsibility and everything bad that happens to them is because the world is an unfair place. And I'm sure you've talked to investors. They like somehow manage to forget all their losses and they always talk about their, you know, the great trades. And what happens in that process is those attribution errors really actually skew your sense of what is going on in the world. And you become kind of a jerk because you believe your own hype and you've like drunk the Kool-Aid that the market has cooked up for you. And that I think is why people become jerks in a way, in a disproportionate share in finance. And of course, those people, I think, you know, really miss out on the most important lesson of finance, which is this is an industry where it is really hard to tell the difference between luck and skill. And, you know, instead, and this is kind of what I really try to do a little bit of a takedown of finance. Um, Instead, we've convinced ourselves in finance that it's like the totally meritocratic world, you know, which is I go to fight in the markets every day and just surviving is testament to my ability. And so it's a brutal world out there and, and I end up on top because I deserve to end up on top. And that's the meritocratic version that most people in finance have. And the lesson of finance, actually the set of ideas is the opposite, which is most of these outcomes are random. It's very hard to tell them away from luck, from skill. And in fact, only over very, very, very long horizons might you be able to discern who is lucky and who is skillful. So it's actually a lesson of humility. It's not a lesson of, of arrogance. And then I kind of end with this, this kind of great Willa Cather story where there's finally somebody who's a financier, this woman, Alexandra Bergson, who does everything that you could do in a finance textbook. She levers up, she merges, she diversifies, she buys options. She does like everything we just talked about. Yet she remains like this lovely, lovely person. And the reason she remains this lovely, lovely person is because she doesn't confuse luck and skill. She kind of thinks through her outcomes as being a function of um, the land and like being in the right place at the right time. And of course, she's like super smart, but she makes this decision to understand the world as being more governed by chance and more her outcome governed by luck. And that makes her into a much more pleasant person to be around (laughs) um, than if you choose the other way of thinking about the world as an operating belief. So what are the things that people can do to maybe get a better awareness of the relative importance of luck and skill and avoid falling into the trap? Well, I think, you know, there are several things to do. You know, one is, of course, to just acquaint yourself with some statistics, basic statistics, which will just show how random outcomes 
can pile up in ways that look like skill. Uh, and that's the coin flipping game that many people know and, and really taking that to heart and not taking that as an insult, but just understanding the reality and not taking it personally. Because I think what people make the mistake of saying is, but I am really good. That's not the point. The point is you don't know and nobody knows and everybody can say they're good. And in a world of 10,000 fund managers, we should be surprised that more aren't beating the market for five years in a row or 10 years in a row. That's the puzzle, not how did that guy do it? The puzzle is why aren't there more? And so I think those kinds of basic statistical notions are, are really powerful. You know, for my taste, I think humanities is a great way to kind of understand chance in life. And stories are fantastic because they ground you in a reality that's not spreadsheets and screens, but is like a human reality. I think that's important. And, you know, more generally, I think, you know, grounding yourself in human realities, right? So if you are living in a, in a bubble with a lot of people like yourself, talking about a lot of the same things that you're always talking about, you're going to believe, believe the things that you talk about. And I, <laughs> you don't want to do that. I think you want to expose yourself to lots of different environments and lots of different people who are thinking about the world differently. And so you understand your outcome is a, is a positive thing as opposed to just a natural occurrence because of your skill. So I think my last question, I want to get a sense of how it was you were able to find all the material that, that went into this book because it's remarkably, you know, we've alluded to this throughout this conversation, there's a remarkable amount of references through literature and, and history and so forth. I'm just curious, <laughs> to me, did, you, did you know a lot of this going in or I mean, how, how did that, that process work? Well, I knew a little bit of it going in. Uh, you know, there are things that I drew on that I'd known, on, known of before. But the vast majority of it, you know, this is why the, writing the book was like the most fun thing ever. I read more in that year plus than I've ever read before in my life, cumulatively, I think. And it was a great experience because in a way, I was kind of just trying to find these stories that were emblematic of these ideas. And, you know, you, you basically run down a hundred rat holes and then you find this like incredible thing and you're like, this is exactly what optionality is, right? This is exactly what leverage is about. And those stories are like, you know, just gold mines and then when you unwrap them a little they become more like gold mines you know so in the optionality chapter i talk about um in the parable of the talents chapter i talk a little bit about samuel johnson and john milton and they both exemplify the parable of the talents but then they also get you to think about luck and skill and so it's this once you discover the story it's like everywhere you know it's like a lot of different things so yeah, no, I I can take uh, you know no credit for being uh, exceptional in my cultural knowledge. I I have a I have a, you know kind of broad appetites, which I think helped me write the book because I was willing to read anything or look at anything and and try to find the inspiration anywhere. Uh, so that was the really the key thing. So one thing we like to do at the uh, the end of these interviews is to ask people for a long-form recommendation. It can be a book or an article or, or a film or a television program. I'm going to start. Uh, there was an article in the New York Times recently where they did some very clever statistical analysis of mortality to estimate the death toll from Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico and found that they did an attribution, basically found that it was well over 1,000 people, which is much more than the official figures. So I guess I'm going to be uh, somewhat less high-minded than that. I'll give you two things that are on my mind, at least. One is I very quickly devoured the second season of The Crown, and I thought it was great. And it's just this incredible combination of history. You get the Profumo affair. You get all these different things. And then it's like this, you know, basically household drama. And I think the second season's even better than the first season. And it's great because in a way, nothing happens. Because like these people's lives are pretty, you know, in some sense boring, but it's like spectacular and it's beautiful and it's well acted and it's great. And then the second thing I guess I'm going to recommend to be somewhat more high uh, minded is uh, a novella that came out earlier this year called Gutcher Gochar, which is all about wealth and money and how corrupting it can be. And it's like it'll take you four hours to read, maybe. And it's a little novella uh, translated from uh, Indian regional language. And it's like a, what's nice is it's not like greed in the context of like some investment banker who's like making a lot of money. It's just greed in the context of this Indian household where all these household dynamics get corrupted because of greed. And it's like a devastating kind of portrait of, of greed in a family. And so that's my other recommendation. Professor Mahir Desai, thank you for coming. Sure. My pleasure. 
the end of Matt's conversation with Mahir Desai. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. That's plus one country code because we are in the U.S. You can also email us at alphachat at ft.com. Please, please rate the show and leave a review at Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find out about Alpha Chat, but it also helps us improve the show each week. We do read each of those reviews. Thanks again to Matt and Mahir for this week's interview, and we'll see you here next week for another brand new episode of Alpha Chat. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.